0: Welcome to The Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales. And this week, we are going to talk about returning to work after a prolonged absence, specifically due to mental illness. This is an area that that I understand somewhat intimately as I was off work for a couple of years right after diagnosis. And the conversation sort of started up inside some forums where people were asking, how did you do it? How did you go back to work after being off work for a couple of years? And, well, Vin and I needed a topic, so here we are. So here it is. <laughs> here it is. So here it is. So th- the first thing that I want to say is that people with mental illness hold down full-time jobs. It, it's, it's sad that in 2017, that's a fact that needs unequivocally stated, but mm-hmm. it's a fact that needs unequivocally stated. People like myself, I live with bipolar disorder. I have a full-time job. I have a few of them actually. <laughs> uh, I, I, I work quite a lot in fairness. I, I did not know when I was off work that, that I would get back to this point. I, I don't want to say that, that, when I was in my, my epic four-year battle against bipolar disorder that I thought to myself, oh, someday I'm going to have a full-time job and do a lot of work on the side, and I'll even be able to travel. No, I was, I was pretty much focused on taking a shower. But I did get there.
2: More than that, you even thought at the beginning that your whole life was just gone, that you were going to be an invalid inside your home for the rest of your life.
1: Well, more specifically, I thought that I was going to be an invalid in a group home. For, for okay. some reason, I, I truly right. believed that a group home uh, is where I was going to, to go. But for a couple of years, I didn't work. And I was fortunate enough to have a good support system. I had good family and friends around me and I, I had some money saved up. So I, I was able to not work for a couple of years. But eventually, I did need to get back to work, both because that was a goal of mine and well, because people were tired of taking care of me. And it was terrifying. The, the the one thing that I want to make abundantly clear is I didn't go from not working to full-time. I, I didn't wake up one Monday morning and have a full-time job. In, in fact, I, I accepted several jobs that I had a panic attack and quit after a couple of days. One, one job I quit from the parking lot. I, I actually called on my phone from the parking lot and said that I couldn't take the job and turned around and, and drove home. It was uh, it, it was, it was a low point, um, because I just had such a horrible panic attack at the idea of going to work. And that's when I realized that I needed a little assistance. I needed a little help mm-hmm. with this. And what I did is I, I was not aware of vocational programs at the time. We'll talk about those a little bit later. Uh, what I did is ask my therapist, my therapist said, you realize that you're, you're trying to do an awful lot here. You're going from not having worked at all to a full-time job. Why don't you volunteer? I thought, well, that's okay, I, I still kind of need money though. And uh, <laughs> uh, so she said, uh, well, maybe a part-time job. So what I was able to do, I, I, again, I'm, I'm a very fortunate person and, and I did not realize this at the time. I owe a lot of people thank yous, but what I did at the time is I went back to school. I actually went back to, uh, to college and I got my real estate license. And from my real estate license, I was able to work part-time in a real estate office. Didn't make a lot of money, uh, but it was a success. Vin, I I can't tell you how good it felt to, after not doing anything outside the home, anything that society deems beneficial, to get my real estate license, to become licensed by the state of Ohio, to get a job with a real estate company, to bring some money in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I'm sure that was great. And that's where I built from. So that was the long, long, long way of using my personal story to say, yeah, I didn't go from not working at all to working full time in a high pressure job. I went from not working at all to going back to school, which was essentially part time to volunteering, which which got me some more hours to working a part time job to eventually going up to 30 hours to eventually going up to 40 hours. And this whole thing took place over a space of a couple of years. Mm hmm. So if I have any secrets, it's to start slow.
2: One of the things that you just said, I think is quite important. And that was that you spoke with your therapist first before you went back to work.
1: That's true. And that is not something that I thought to do on my own. Oh. I just started applying for jobs one day. One of the things for me and, and for many people, I think, is that we really have this idea that we're going to go from being really, really sick to 100% like that. Right. Just, just instantly that, that our lives are going to get back on track immediately. Um, I don't know if it's because I was young, you know, I was younger when this was going on. Actually I was, I was older for somebody with mental illness, but you know, I was still, I was 27, 28 years old. And I, I really just had this idea that no, 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 no. I'm back. I'm hundred percent again. It was an example of me not respecting the illness of me, not respecting mm. my situation. And while well, me being overconfident in what I could and could not do, uh, and I did not address any of that with my therapist. It wasn't until I had a couple of panic attacks, quit a couple of jobs that, you know, my family was like, what is wrong with you? Why do you, actually the exact phrase was, why do you keep doing this to yourself? And I said, because I need a job. Like, but, but this isn't working. So I brought up to my therapist actually that my family was being mean at my attempts to get a job. And, and she kind of took it from there. Therapists are really smart. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I've, I have, uh, I've determined that. <laughs> so I think that what we can say for our listeners is that that would be a good first step, you know, even, even before you start sending in resumes and whatnot, is to talk to your therapist because they can help you. They can help you plan for the return to the workplace.
1: Exactly. And in, in addition to, there, there's other ideas as well. Uh, obviously, talking to your therapist is, is a great one. There's also, in some cities, uh, vocational rehab. Now, this is not something that I have firsthand experience with, but several people I know went to vocational rehab places, and they said, hey, look, I used to be an ex. I've been off work for a couple of years because of, you know, mental illness, and now I need to find a job because they want to work. It's, it's not a People don't not want to work. That's, that's this misconception that just plagues people with mental illness, that we just don't want to work. That's not true. We're having trouble working. So, you know, hey, maybe the high-pressure job that you had before you were diagnosed, you know, before you got sick, is not something that you can go back to. This is great. The world is, is huge. It has tons of opportunities. But you might need some training.
2: Right, Exactly.
1: And some of that training might be new job skills. Some of that training might just be how to talk to HR about your disability. Um, Some of it might be understanding how the law works. What is a reasonable accommodation? What does the ADA, which is the American with Disabilities Act, how does that apply to you? Does it apply to you? Mm -hmm. Uh, These are all questions that I did not seek answers to before I went back to work. And it, it made it harder. Also, I did not address the underlying trauma, not to get too far off, but when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, I was fired from my job after about a year. And this is a job that I'd had for a long time that I was very proud of. I was the youngest person hired in my department. I, it was a job that I made really great money doing. And I thought that I had a lot of respect there. And then one day I had no respect and after a year I had no job. So I never addressed that my workplace discriminated against me i never addressed it
2: which brings us to the subject of coworkers in the workplace because you know what you experienced was unfortunate but when you're returning to the workplace your coworkers can be a great help to you if you let them
1: they can be with mental illness it is scary because that means you have to disclose that you have a mental illness in the workplace.
2: Exactly. Yes. So
1: you, you've got to decide how supportive your workplace is. I, I, I feel that that's a, that's an important thing to bring up. You have to sure. decide when you're going back, are you going to disclose to HR? Are you going to disclose to everybody or are you not going to disclose at all? And, and that's going to depend what indus- it's going to depend a lot on what industry you work in, believe it or not. So that does bring us
2: to the question of should we disclose or not? And as you just said, Certain jobs you might not want to. What might some of those jobs be, Gabe?
1: First, it's really, really tough. I I don't want to throw employers and jobs under the bus, but I have to say that if you're if you're working with kids, uh, if you're if you're working with uh, something that takes a clearance, if you're working with something that involves the public trust, I I live with bipolar disorder, and I hate stigma and discrimination more than anybody else in the world. But I gotta tell you, I would be lying if I told you that I would hire a defense attorney with bipolar disorder. I'd be scared. What if they had a breakdown in the middle of my trial? Trial takes a year. I I just, I don't know. I think that that is a a question that each person has to answer for themselves. Right. Let's take a quick break, Vin, and hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Hey, fans of the
1: Psych Central Show podcast, we are currently surveying our listeners to learn more about you and to learn what we can do better. Please take a few minutes and visit our website at psychcentral.com show and click on listener survey link found on that page. Thank you.
2: Welcome back, everyone. We are discussing returning to the workplace after a prolonged absence due to mental illness. Let's assume for a moment that you've chosen to disclose course, it doesn't have to be to everybody. It could be just to your supervisor. It could just be to HR. What are, what are some of the positive things that could come of that, that that our listeners might not think of?
1: The greatest thing that can come from that is understanding. H- hiding, there, there's a toll to hiding. I-, I hated hiding from my coworkers because they'd ask me basic questions and I would have to, you know, dance around the subject. And people aren't stupid. They know when you're hiding something. Or you just have to avoid them entirely, and then you make no meaningful relationships at work. We spend a lot of time at work. So you you make friends and you make people that can help you if you become symptomatic. You make, this is my favorite word, allies. People living with chronic illnesses need allies. And you can make those allies at work, especially if you talk to them about your disorder before you're symptomatic. Mm -hmm. Because it's very difficult to explain your disorder while symptomatic, because you're kind of all wrapped up in, you know, being symptomatic. (laughs) So educating them up front lets them know what to do when you become symptomatic so they can help you.
2: And not only when you're symptomatic, but sometimes you will just have certain needs that only HR and your supervisor can help you with just in the course of your regular days. So in in addition to getting that set up from the get-go, you'd probably want to check in with your supervisor and HR periodically going forward just to make sure that everything is still being met for you.
1: Of course, reasonable accommodations are very, very important. Uh, For example, anybody managing a chronic illness is probably going to need more time off than somebody who's not managing it. And not because of the illness, but because of things like doctor's appointments. Uh, Those tend to happen during business hours. So you want to be able to explain to your supervisor that, hey, it's not that you're lazy. It's not that you're not planning. You're not going to the movies. You're not checking out OzFest all the time. Uh, You have these doctor's appointments. And by working with your supervisor, you can find the times that are least impactful to the business. And they will appreciate that. Plus, they'll know that you're doing everything that you can to manage your illness in a way that is least impactful to, you know, the day-to-day needs of the job because you're there to do a job. They have a job as well.
2: You mentioned talking with your doctor and talking with your your supervisors. Should they talk to each other?
1: That's a tougher one. I don't want my treatment team to talk to my boss because I just don't know what they're going to say or what's going to be used against me later. Uh, And it's not really because I run paranoid. It's just that I kind of think that my medical treatment is somewhat private and I don't want to open the door for that. However, depending on the level of... uh, accommodation that you need, it might be mandatory. For me, I need very small accommodations. And so far, they're accommodations that people have been willing to give me without, you know, too much documentation, we'll say. Uh, but if I needed bigger ones, they might say, look, we're willing to accommodate this, but we're going to need to see some sort of proof that you need this accommodation. And and then, yeah, you're going to want HR and your boss to, to talk.
2: So the Reasonable accommodations. Let's talk about that for a second. Some of the more common ones would be a reasonable schedule. And I know that that's an important one for you.
1: Yes. I need more breaks than we would say the average person does. I, I'm not a person that can sit at my desk from, for, you know, for four hours without a break. Uh, I work for about 45 minutes and then I need about 15 minutes off. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, you need a 15-minute break every hour? That's, that's a big, big ask. And depending on what kind of industry I worked in, it would be. Luckily, the industry that I work in, that's not a problem at all. I, I'm gauged by by work product. They don't particularly care how long it took to write an article or design a fundraiser or do you know event managing things or write a speech or uh, they they don't care. I can write it in three hours straight or I can write it in ten minute chunks. They they don't care. So. This has worked out very, very well for me. But part of that was me picking the right organization to work for and the right industry to work for. I absolutely could not make it as a truck driver or an airplane pilot. You you can't take a 15-minute break every hour if you're trying to drive a truck cross-country. My dad reminds me of that every chance he gets.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Now, part of of having a reasonable schedule can also include the ability to say – hey, I got to go home or I can't come in today.
1: Yeah, taking a mental health day is important and having a workplace that understands that is helpful. Also, flex time is very important. I can get to to work anytime I want. They, They don't really care. They're interested in my work product. I'm interested in my work product. So we're both on the same page. But again, if I were a security guard, you can't have the security guard showing up whatever the heck he wants and taking all kinds of breaks. That's a post that needs manned.
2: So what we're really boiling this down to is you've got to have a good relationship with HR and your supervisors for any of this to really work for you.
1: You do. You need to understand what is reasonable, what is unreasonable. You need to negotiate in good faith as well. So many people say, I want, and if they get any pushback from, human resources or anybody like that. They're like, I've been discriminated against stigma. This is horrible. That's, that's not negotiating in good faith. You need to understand you might not get everything that you want in the way that you want it, but you have to keep that open dialogue going. You have to really be honest with yourself between what is a need, meaning you need it or you cannot work. And what is a want, meaning you want it because you feel your work will be better. And then you need to explain all that out and keep that dialogue going. If you start that dialogue when you're well and when you're not symptomatic, then it becomes a negotiation. It becomes a conversation and you become a team, a team so that everybody gets what they want.
2: Right. Everything has to be mutually acceptable. It can't, you can't have a feeling of where, well, they're screwing me over or them thinking, well, you're taking advantage of us.
1: Correct. And And that's important on all levels. Your coworkers need to believe that you care about the team. Your supervisors need to believe that you care about their team. Their higher-ups need to believe it. If you're customer-facing, the customers need to understand it. There's still a business need. So often I talk to people that are having trouble in their new jobs, and they're just like, well, they don't understand what it's like to be mentally ill. And I say that that is probably true, but the way that you're talking, you don't seem to understand what it's like to run a business. And that business needs to survive or nobody's getting paid. It's not a charity. You're at work. And that opens some eyes to people. We do have a tendency to get wrapped up in our own illness because we're trying so hard to move forward. And we've been stigmatized, discriminated against, traumatized. We've been beat down by the illness that any slight is easy to take very, very personal. Remember, this is work. I hate to use the phrase, it's not personal, it's only business, but it would do people good to remember that this is a business negotiation.
2: And what we've also been basically saying without saying it is that you're the one here. You have to be your own advocate. You're the one that has to work for what you get. Nobody else is going to do it for you.
1: At the end of the day, you have to be your own advocate. Having a good support system, having an understanding boss, having awesome coworkers that bring you casseroles and and have birthday cake (laughs) on your birthday, all of those things are wonderful. But nobody knows what you need like you do. And if you can't articulate what you need, nobody else can just read your mind and give it to you. We have to be our own advocates first, especially in the workplace. And listen, that's good advice, period. Whether you're living with a mental illness or not, you need to be your own advocate at work. It's just extra important if if you're living with mental illness, I think. You told me one
2: time that you've gotten complaints from people who think that you are mean to them when it comes to workplace issues.
1: It is a criticism that I get a lot. And I feel bad because I really wish that I could just hug everybody and tell them that it's going to be okay but one of the reasons that I can tell people that it's going to be okay is because I say things like, look, you're in control. You have to take control. And I'm really sorry when employers do things that are, that are discriminating, stigmatizing, et cetera, but we can't rest on our laurels and hope that everybody's going to be fair. We have to take charge. So what I'm really trying to say is take the power, take the power back and forge your own way. It's not always going to be fair. But the one thing that I have learned in managing mental illness for this long is that sitting at home saying that what happened to me wasn't fair, did not get me back to work. It did not get me well. For real. We can do an entire podcast on all the horribly unfair things that happened to me. But the most unfair thing that ever happened to me was the universe decided to give me bipolar disorder. And that's incredibly unfair, but there was nobody to blame. So I just had to take responsibility for it and move forward. So when it comes to working, when it comes to making your own way in the workplace, this really is a take the power, fight for yourself, move forward and make the best life you can. And yeah, I get that it's an uphill battle. And if you want me to pat you on the back and tell you that it's an uphill battle, I, I would love to, but it, it's not gonna get you up the hill. It's just not. And I, I really think that the best advice is to own your story, take charge of your narrative, work really, really hard, and move forward, even in the face of incredible adversity. Good advice. Okay, so we've discussed
2: coworkers and supervisors and all of that. We've discussed other support networks, including your therapists, your family. What else we got? Because I know that there have to be resources out there that can help you get back to work that have nothing to do with your support network and your employers. What about online resources?
1: Online resources are great. PsychCentral.com. Have you heard of it, Vin? Vaguely, yes. (laughs) PsychCentral has tons of forums, and I would be willing to bet almost any amount of money that 100 people in those forums right now are discussing this very thing. And these are all free resources. And, and while I'm not going to advertise for the rest of the internet, Psych Central did not invent peer support. They, they, we do not own the only forums on this. There's, there's great resources online. Psychcentral.com is just the best. Then I think the best advice is that if you need a job and you want a job, go get a job. If it doesn't work out, there's lots and lots of jobs. And you just got to keep pushing and moving forward. And hopefully you'll find the right match for you. So thanks everyone for tuning in. And remember, you can get one week of convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, absolutely free by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. We'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. PsychCentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. PsychCentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counsellor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at vincentmwales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com.
1: There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD.